You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Boutan on the Calvary Brighton Podcast. The title of, of our message as we look at chapter 20 this morning is, is Deranged Denial and Danger. Because in this passage we see that Saul is deranged, Jonathan is in denial, and David is in danger. Now, we, we, we all know that famous line from Mark Twain when he, when, he, when he said that denial ain't just a river in Egypt, right? Well, this morning we see that, that Jonathan is in deep denial. Now, now remember, two weeks ago, back in chapter 18, we saw that Jonathan and David had made a covenant with each other to become lifelong best friends. But then last week in chapter 19, we saw that Jonathan's father, King Saul, was so driven by jealousy and fear and paranoia that he was hell-bent on seeing the destruction of David to the point that he issues a public order to kill David. He even orders Jonathan to kill David. But now this morning here in chapter 20, we see that, 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 that even though Jonathan heard those murderous threats with his own ears, he still can't believe, he, he still can't accept that, that David, his best friend, is really in danger of being murdered by his dad. And so you might say that, that, that Jonathan is in such a deep state of denial, he might as well have been an Egyptian. Uh, he's deep in denial. So now as we look at the first three verses, we look at Jonathan's denial. Verse 1. Then David fled from Nioth and Ramah, and he came and he, and he said before Jonathan, What have I done, and, and what is my guilt, and what is my sin before your father, that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes, and he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But, but truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. So now again, we saw last week that, that Jonathan was raised in a very dysfunctional home, right? Now, speaking of dysfunctional, uh, years ago, uh, the, the, the popular Christian psychologist by the name of Dr. Henry Cloud was, was speaking at a conference. It was at a church that had 2,000 people. So he's at this conference, and he, he's speaking on the subject of dysfunctional families. So he gets up, and he says, now, first of all, I want everyone who, who did not come from a, from a dysfunctional home to stand up. He says, let me repeat, those who were not raised in a dysfunctional family stand up. So one by one, a few people stood up here, cluster of people over there, a few people over there. And so there was a few people all over scattered around that were standing up. Now at that point, Dr. Cloud looked and he said, now I want the rest of you that are sitting down to take a look at those that are standing up. Those who by standing up are saying they did not come from a dysfunctional home. He said, now look at that. He says, what you're seeing, he says, that is what denial looks like. And so again, we, we all come from dysfunctional homes. Some of us just come from more dysfunctional than other homes, right? Well, now, Jonathan, like so many of us, he came from a dysfunctional home, and yet it seems this morning that he was in denial of that. Now, by the way, how many of you know someone who's in denial? You know, maybe it's an alcoholic who, who, who denies that they have a problem. Or, or maybe, maybe it's someone who, who lost a loved one recently, but they refuse to accept the reality of death. Now, by the way, that is considered one of the stages of grief. Denial is one of the five stages of, of grief. Or then again, you know, maybe, maybe someone has hurt you. Maybe, maybe they physically hurt you. Maybe they hurt your feelings. And, and yet they refuse to admit, that they, they refuse to accept what they've done. In fact, in some ways, they even blame you for it. So now you confront them and they're like, well, you know what? 
I wouldn't have said what I said if you wouldn't have done what you did. So they blame you for it. Kind of like when I was a kid, my mom would say, why did you make me hit you? <laughs> you know, and, 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 and how about this? Sometimes it's common for, for two different kids who grew up in the same home, the same abusive home, to see that same abusive home in two very different ways. For example, one might see the home as, as a home that was filled with yelling and, and, and with violence and with alcoholism. Maybe a home of, of physical abuse, maybe even sexual abuse. But then, then again, maybe the other doesn't see the home the same way, leaving us to wonder, well, well how can two people who were raised in the same home see the home two very different ways? And sometimes the answer is denial. Uh, experts say that denial is, is, is a coping mechanism the, 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 where, where, where your brain is, is, is blocking out the pain, blocking out the trauma, and you just don't remember. Where C.S. Lewis put it, he said, denial is the shock absorber of the soul. It protects us until we are equipped to cope with reality. Or like this t-shirt that said, denial is the way we handle what we cannot handle. Now, with all that in mind, uh, that, that might shed some light as, as, as to Jonathan's reaction to, to David's accusation that, that his dad wants David dead. Now, again, back in chapter 19, Saul already issued the public order. He told everyone, in fact, he told Jonathan he wanted David dead. Chapter 19, verse 1, it says, And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. So again, he heard this with his own ears. In fact, back in that last chapter, we saw that, that Jonathan even defended David. But now in chapter 20, it's as if Jonathan is, is so caught up in this, in this bizarre family dynamic that he's like, you know, you know, sometimes my, my dad just, just, just flies off the handle. You know, I mean, you know, it's, it's just kind of the way he is. I mean, he doesn't mean anything by it. You know, it's just, it's just Saul being Saul, you know, but he doesn't really mean it. He, he, he's not really going to kill you. In a word, this was denial. And, and, and Jonathan is deep in it. And so now he's in denial, but even though Jonathan's in denial, nevertheless, as we pick it up in verse four, they come up with the plan. They come up with the way to, to figure out if, if this is really true or not. So in verse four, it says, then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. And so David said to Jonathan, behold, tomorrow is the new moon. And, and, and I, should, I should not fail to sit at the table with the king, but let me go that I may hide myself in the field until the third day at evening. And if your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city. For there is a yearly sacrifice there for, for all the clan. And if he says, good, then it'll be well for your servant. But if he's angry, then you will know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant with the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, then kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to, 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 to your father? And Jonathan said, far be it from you, for if I knew that, that it was determined for, uh, that, that my father would harm, uh, harm you, uh, then, then would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, come and let us go into the field. And so they both went into the field. Now we'll pause here. So now they're coming up with this plan. And, and by the way, this plan is all centered around a festival, a, a feast known as the new moon, or in Hebrew, Rosh Chodesh. 
Now, Rosh Chodesh, or, or the new moon, was a, was a two-day festival where, where it was held for two days. It would it'd be held on the last day of the old month and on the first day of the new month. Now, according to, to Numbers chapter 28, you were to offer burnt offerings at this time, during this festival. And so really what this was, was, was this is a time where you'd have a, a huge family meal, a huge family get-together, and it would last for two days. In fact, your employer was required to give you the two days off. So it's like an extended time, kind of like an extended weekend, kind of like, you know, Labor Day weekend. So they have like, a, like an extended time, a, a mandatory time of rest. And by the way, during this time, it was required that the whole family would celebrate this at their father's house. Now, because David was not only the king's son-in-law, but he was also the, the, the biggest military hero in all of Israel, David would have been expected, if not even required, to be there. And so his absence would, would have been interpreted as a, as a slap in the face, as, as an insult. So with that, David's like, you know, tell you what, Jonathan, I know you're, you're having a hard time believing that, that your dad wants me dead, so, so here's what we'll do. We'll come up with the plan. You know, we got this big family celebration, you know, the, the, the feast of the new moon. Now, you know, technically, I'm required to be there, so let's see what happens. Hey, let's see how your dad reacts when I'm not there. And so if your dad asks, well, well where's David? Just tell him that you allowed me to go back home and, and visit my family, and let's see how he responds. He says, Jonathan, you know what? If, if you're right, then he's going to respond by saying something like, oh, you know what? That's good. It's been a long time since his family's been able to see him. I'm glad he went back home. I'm, I'm sure they, they had some catching up to do. This is a good thing. That's how he's going to respond if you're right. But Jonathan, you know what? If I'm right, then, then you know what? He's going to snap. He's going to lose his stuff. You know, this is going to be one of those family meals where all of a sudden the dad just kind of, kind of slams the table with his hand. And he's like, you know what? How dare you disrespect me like this? You know what? I not only want him out of the royal family, I want him out of life. It's time to kill David. He says, so you know what? This is how we're going to know. This is the test. This is how we're going to discover if, if, you know, who's right in this situation. Now, it's interesting, the appeal that, that David makes in verse 8, when he says in verse 8, therefore deal kindly with your servant. And that phrase, deal kindly, it's the Hebrew chesed. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a word that can be translated love. It can be translated mercy. It can be translated grace. But literally, in this context, it literally means covenant love. Covenant love. Now, why is that important? Well, because remember, two weeks ago, chapter 18, I already mentioned that, that, that in chapter 18, Jonathan and David made a covenant with each other to become lifelong best friends. And I mentioned two weeks ago that how the covenant would work is, is there would be a sacrifice. They would cut an animal in half, split the animal apart, and then the two people making the covenant would walk between those animal halves being sprayed by its blood in the process. And it was sort of a symbolic way of saying that, that, if, that if I break my end of the deal, if I break my end of this covenant, then may what was done to this animal be done to me. And so covenants were for life. They, they only ended at death. Now, not only would there be a sacrifice, they would also exchange gifts. Now, these were to be gifts that no one else could give you. And that's why back in chapter 18, we read that Jonathan gave David his royal robe and along with that, his weapons. Now, uh, ancient Jewish rabbis believe that David gave Jonathan his sling, the sling that he defeated Goliath with. These were gifts that no one else could give. And so what's happening here in chapter 20 is now, it's, it's as if Jonathan is, is in the midst of, a, of an emotional tug-of-war. 
You know, he's, he's in the midst of, of, of a battle between loyalties. Because on the one hand, Exodus chapter 20, verse 12 says, honor your father and mother. So he wants to honor his father. But on the other hand, Ecclesiastes 5, verse 4 says, when you make a promise or a covenant to God, do not delay in following through, for God takes no pleasure in fools. Keep all the promises you make to him. So on the one hand, he wants to honor his father. But on the other hand, he wants to honor his covenant. So he has to make a choice. Is he going to stand by his best friend or is he going to stand by his father who wants his best friend dead? And so now David, on that note, is making an appeal when he says, deal kindly with your servant. And he's appealing to the covenant they made. It's as if he's saying, you know what, Jonathan, you and I made a deal and now it's time for you to keep your end of the deal. It's time for you to stand by your covenant. Even though you don't believe this, you've got to stand by your covenant. It's your turn to stand by your deal. So they, they come up with this plan. David says, well, how am I going to know if it's safe to come back? And so in verse 12, and Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or on the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then uh, send and disclose it to you? But... Should it please my father to do you harm, the, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more so also, if, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety, and may the Lord be with you, as he's been with my father. And by the way, that phrase, may the Lord be with you, as he's been with my father, it was a recognition that, that, that Jonathan realized that David had been called to be the next king. As God anointed you, I'm sorry, as God anointed my father, may he anoint you. He was recognizing God's hand was on David to be the next king. He says in verse 14, If I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And also do not cut off your steadfastness from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every any enemy of David's from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. And Jonathan said to him, tomorrow is the new moon and, and you will be missed because your sea will be empty. And, in the, and, and on the third day, go down quickly to the place where you, where you hid yourself when the matter was at hand and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the, to the side of it as though I, I shot at a mark. And behold, I, I will send the boy and I will say to him, go and find the arrows. And if I say to the boy, look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them, then you shall come for, for, the Lord, for as the Lord lives, it is safe for you and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter about which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever." So they come up with this plan, and now they have this signal to, to, to communicate if it's safer for David to come home. And basically the signal is this. He says, you know what? I'm going to go out into the field, and I'm going to act like I'm, I'm, I'm taking target practice. I'll bring out some arrows, and then I'll bring this boy out, and I'll, I'll shoot the arrows and have him go out there. Now, if you read it carefully, it says he's going to send the boy out and then shoot the arrows. Is that really safe? I mean, is anybody else who grew up in the 80s thinking about, you know, like, uh, you know the, the lawn darts we used to play with? That was a great game until, like, you know, somebody got impaled. But, you know, so, so I'm going to send the boy out and shoot the arrow out. And so, you know, and, and he says, so what's going to happen, David, is if I shoot the arrow closer to you, that's the sign that it's safe to come back home. 
But then again, if I shoot the arrow beyond you, that's the sign, that's the signal that you better run because Saul has an arrow with your name on it. You're a dead man walking. You, you, you need to run while you can. So they're, 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 there's this plan, they, they, they have the signal, but deep down, Jonathan is still holding out hope that everything's going to be okay. That, that, that David's worried for nothing, that, that, you know, that, that you know, this is all going to work out. But as we pick it up in verses 24 through 34, Jonathan's about to discover, uh, to discover that, that his dad, his father, was in fact deranged. Verse 24. So David himself, I'm sorry, David hid himself in the field. And when the new moon came, the king sat down and, uh, to, to eat food. The king sat on his seat as at the other times on the seat by the wall. And Jonathan sat opposite and Abner sat by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. And Saul did not think anything of it that day, for he thought to himself, something ha has happened to him. He's not clean. Surely he's not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And, and, and Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? And Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go for, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city and, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now if I found favor in your eyes, let me go and get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he's not come to the king's table. And Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. <laughs> So, so he's not only attacking Jonathan, he's attacking his, his wife, Jonathan's mother, basically accusing her of unfaithfulness. He says, you, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do, do, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to, to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son, son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But, 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 but Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that, that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger, and he ate no food that second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. So again, they make this plan, and one by one, it's all kind of unfolding, and, 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 and David's not there that first day of the feast. Now, the first day, Saul doesn't think too much of it. In fact, in verse, in verse 26, he, he just says something's happened to him. He's not clean. Surely he's not clean. Now, by the way, that, that line there in, in verse 26, it's not referring to personal hygiene. He's not like, you know, maybe he's just washing up for dinner. Now, that word not clean, it's, it's the Hebrew tahor. It literally means ceremonially unclean. It was a way of saying that there must be some kind of sin in his life. You see, Saul wasn't, wasn't worried that something bad had happened to David. You know, it wasn't like, you know, I, I hope he's okay. Uh, you know, maybe we should check on him. No, he wasn't worried that something bad happened to David. No, he's convinced that David did something bad. That David was in some kind of sin. He's like, you know what? He, he must be in some kind of sin. That's the reason he's not here. It's kind of on the level of, of when someone that, that you have issues with, someone you have problems with, doesn't show up to church service one day. And maybe on your inside voice, you think something like, you know what? I bet the reason they're not here is because they're still hung over. You know, we get all judgmental. We, we, we start judging them for their sin. 
And this reminds us that, that, that sometimes when we suspect someone else's motives, sometimes when, when we suspect that someone else is in sin, sometimes that reveals more about us than it does about them. Just as it did with Saul. So, so David's not there. And the first day, he, he, he's suspicious of something. And now the second day, David's not there. And now that's when Saul snaps. That's when Saul loses it to the point that, verse 33, he throws a spear at his son, Jonathan. Now look, up until now, Jonathan's been, been struggling to, to accept the truth that his dad actually wants his best friend David dead. But listen, when a spear is suddenly chucked in your direction, that has a way of getting your attention. I mean, you know, spears have a way of, of snapping you out of denial. Am I right? So all of a sudden, Jonathan's thinking, you know, maybe David's right. Maybe my dad is nuts. Maybe my dad is deranged. Now, I read this. The statistics on insanity are one out of every three. One out of every three suffers from insanity. Now, so what that means is, you know, take, take a look at the person on your right. Take a, person, take a look at the person on your left. Now, if they look okay to you, then it's you. So, so, so Jonathan, he, he looks at himself, Jonathan looks at David, and, and then he looks at Saul, you know, with that deranged look in his eye and the spirit in his hand. He's like, it's him. He's the crazy one. He's the deranged one. And by the way, uh, Saul wasn't just crazy. He, he didn't just suffer from mental illness. He wasn't just deranged, but this was demonically inspired. This was demonically inspired. Why do I say that? Well, remember, Chapter after chapter, we saw over and over again, we keep seeing this phrase that says, and an evil spirit came upon him. An evil spirit came upon Saul. Over and over again. Reminding us that, that in many ways, Saul's hatred of David wasn't just mental illness, it was demonically inspired. But why? Well, think of it like this. Remember, from the line of David is going to come the Messiah, is going to come the Savior, is going to come Jesus himself. And so in many ways, by killing David, by cutting off David, you were cutting off the family tree of Jesus before it ever had a chance to take root. In fact, one of the, one of the themes throughout the Bible that we see is over and over again, the devil is constantly looking for a way to stop the coming of Jesus, to actually kill Jesus before he's even born. And we see this theme over and over again. In fact, we see it here in this passage. We see it again throughout the book as Saul is targeting David. It seems to be demonically inspired. So we see that Jonathan is, 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 is in denial and, and Saul is deranged, if not demonic. And it's with that in mind, as we pick it up in verse 35, that, 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 that Jonathan realizes that David really is in danger. Verse 35 in the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David, and, and with him was a little boy. And he said, to the, he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. And the boy ran, and, and he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place where, where the arrow was that Jonathan, uh, the, the, the Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy, and he said, is, is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy and said, hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up all the arrows and he came back to his master, but the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and he said to him, go and carry them into the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David arose from, from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another and David weeping the most. Now, by the way, 
In our modern perspective, we read a lot, in fact, too much into that last little verse. And that's because we're not reading it from a Middle Eastern, let alone an ancient Middle Eastern perspective. In fact, even in in, in the modern Middle East, this is still a very, very common practice. The the kissing and the embracing uh, uh, among men, especially at a time of grief. It's a very common practice. So then, verse 42, then Jonathan said to David, go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord shall be between me and you, between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. And so now, from from here on out, we see that, that, that David is a wanted man, wanted dead or alive. He's going to be hunted down from this point on by King Saul wherever he goes. So now David goes from from dodging spears in the palace to now constantly looking over his shoulder for for Saul's spears in the wilderness. Now, some years back, there was a book written by the title, The Tale of Three Kings. In fact, we we have the cover up here for you to to look at. Every week when I mention a book, people are like, what's the name of that book again? Well, there you go. You can can get that on Amazon. The Tale of Three Kings, uh, written years ago by by Gene Edwards. Now, in the book, Gene Edwards asked the question. He says, says, are you a king like like King Saul, or are you like King David? And then Gene Edwards asks, he says, uh, David had a question. Uh, What do you do when when, when someone throws a spear at you? Uh, uh, Does it seem odd to you that David didn't know how to answer that question? I mean, after all, everyone else uh, uh, knows what to do when a spear is thrown at you. Why, you pick the spear back up and you throw it right back. When someone throws a spear at you, David, just wrench it out of the wall and throw it back. Everyone else does. You can be sure of that. And in performing the small feat of spear throwing, you will prove many things. You will prove that you are courageous, that, that, that you stand for the right, that you are tough and cannot be pushed around, and you won't stand for unjust and unfair treatment. You are a defender of the faith, a keeper of the flame, and you will not be wronged. And all of these attributes will combine to prove that you are also a candidate for kingship. Yes, perhaps even the Lord's anointed, but after the order of King Saul... There's also the possibility that some 20 years after your coronation, you will be the most incredibly skilled spear thrower in all of the realm. And also by then, quite mad. Now, unlike anyone else in spear throwing history, David did not know what to do when a spear was thrown at him. He did not throw Saul's spear back at him, nor did he make any spears of his own and throw them. Something was different about David. You can easily tell when someone's been hit by a spear, they they turn a deep shade of bitter. David never got hit. Gradually, he learned a very well-kept secret, uh, and, and he discovered three things that prevented him from ever being hit. Number one, never learn anything about the fashionable and easily mastered art of spear throwing. Number two, stay out of the company of all spear throwers. And number three, keep your mouth tightly closed. In this way, spears will never touch you even when they pierce your heart. Listen, many of us in this room, we've been on the receiving end of a spear or two from a madman. Maybe verbal spears, maybe actual spears. Let me ask you, how did you handle it? Did you handle it uh, by by yanking that spear out of the wall and and chucking it right back? Or did you handle it like David handled it? Now we have this interesting statement in the New Testament. 
Later on, regarding David, it says in Acts chapter 13, verse 22, it says, And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom he also gave a testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Now that phrase, a man after my own heart, Chuck Swindoll has an interesting paraphrase on that. Chuck Swindoll says, uh, he says, I, I have found David, a man who cared about the things that I care about. A man whose, whose heart beat in sync with mine. When I look to the right, David looked to the right. And when I look to the left, David looked to the left. That's what it means to be a person after God's own heart. Listen, when, when, when David chose not to return fire, when David chose not to pick up the spear and throw it back, listen, he was modeling the heart of God. Do you remember what Jesus said? What did, what did Jesus tell us to do when we've been wrongly attacked? falsely accused. You may remember that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, he said, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Now, years back when Ken Edelman was still the president of Ozark Bible College, he was speaking before the students, and he said this, he said, he said some of us are, are such a mixture of sinner and sinned against that we cannot forgive people without feeling set free ourselves in the process. Then to illustrate his point, he, he, he told the story of how, how Corey Ten Boom, years and years after her concentration camp experiences, uh, one day she came face to face with one of the, the most heartless, cruelest guards she ever met. This is a guard who, who humiliated uh, and, and degraded both her and her older sister Betsy as he would catcall them and, 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 and visually rape them as he made them shower in front of him day after day after day. And now all these years later, he stands before Corey and he says, Corey, will you forgive me? And she said, I, I, I stood there with, with, with coldness just clutching at my heart and, and I prayed, Jesus, help me. Woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one that was stretched out to me and I experienced an incredible thing. The current started down on my shoulder, raced down into my arms and sprang into our clutched hands. This warm reconciliation seemed to flood my, my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with my whole heart, and for a long moment we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. She says, I've never known the love of God so intensely as I did in that moment. Then Eidelman concludes in, in, with a quote saying, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and to discover the prisoner was you. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Listen, Jesus commanded it and David did it. He lived it. He modeled it. And it's a reminder to us that if he could do it when spears were chucked at him, then you and I can do it when spears are being chucked at us. Amen? So Father, we thank you for your grace. And we thank you for your word. Your word reminds us that you've equipped us to live in this world, even when the spears fly. You've equipped us to stand and to live. Lord, you, you've, you've given us what we need. So we pray, Lord, that your word would, would not only go into our ears, but it would go down deep into our soul and actually change us. Give us the strength. Give us the ability to actually do what we just read to live your word, to be living examples of you and your word to this God-forsaken world. That's our heart's desire. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray.
Thanks for listening to the Calvary Brighton podcast. To find out more about our ministry in Brighton, Colorado, go to calvarychapelbrighton.com.